Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Science gave us some hope. The economic numbers, they gave us none. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Welcome back. Equity markets held up pretty well this week, although below the surface, there are clearly some winners and some losers who are emerging. And judging from what we saw this week, big tech is tending to come out on top. That's something we talked with Wall Street Week contributor Sam Palmasano about. He is the former CEO of IBM. It's interesting, Dave, if you watch what's going on. I mean, the guys that are well-positioned into the pandemic are continuing to do well, especially those that are providing services, like you were mentioning, connectivity uh, in business as well as to the individual. And we, we all connect with our families that way in this environment. Uh, issues associated with the uh, entertainment in the home and those kinds of things, facilitating that. And you see that also in the large tech companies, especially those that are have other business models, but also like YouTube with part of Google, et cetera, et cetera, or Alphabet now. So fundamentally, you know, you see a lot of that going on. I think that the broader trend long term uh, for tech is how behavior is changing and how tech is in facilitating that change. Uh, there are some classic examples one, uh, I think, that leaps off the charts is telemedicine. I mean, telemedicine obviously uses the connectivity technology, whether that be WebEx or Zoom or whatever it happens to be. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's a whole different way of practicing medicine. Now, this has been around for a while. And there are companies like Heal that I know quite well have been around. But as soon as it was approved from a payment perspective, the insurance companies and Medicare, et cetera, these now uh, approaches have lit up. Now, the the point of that is that people will get used to that. 
And if you have the option of not going to the doctor's office and waiting waiting in the, in the reception area for, as you know, a very long time sometimes because things happen, uh, you'll that could be attractive to you. It doesn't mean you'll never go see a doctor again, but it could be an attractive alternative. Uh, you look at things that are going on in commerce. Of course, everybody talks about the big commerce player being Amazon and what they've been able to do in non-prescription drugs. It's like a nine-fold growth, if I'm not mistaken. But even small, small groceries, small retailers and the stuff, at least in our environment, are using things like Instacart. You can order and deliver everything to the home. So all those patterns are going to continue to expand. Telemedicine, touchless payments, uh, e-commerce, those sorts of, down to the small retailers, small grocers, those kinds of things. I believe that the consumer will change. And as a result of the consumer changing their consumption patterns, it creates opportunities for big tech. Uh, Sam, talk to us as the former head of a big public company as well about the role of a public company in this in this world. We now have the government handing out a lot of money, sometimes in exchange for equity. At the same time, some companies are becoming criticized if they're not socially responsible. Is ESG more important than ever? First of all, I'll start with ESG or social responsibility connecting to your society was always fundamentally important. We can argue about the extent that people did that or not did that. We can talk about the pressure of short-term you know, investment, et cetera, et cetera. But fundamentally, it's, it's, it was strategically important to your brand. Because if you do things that are valuable to your individual customers or to society, your brand will be enhanced. Your value will be created. And that will show up in your shareholder price as well. So I think it's always been important. I believe, quite honestly, uh, large companies today have been extremely responsible. I mean, if you look at what people are doing, whether it's 3M or whether it's going on in biotech, you just heard about, talked about Gilead, what they've been able to do in a very short period of time as well. You talk about uh, what other guys are doing to help in the pandemic, even the energy companies that are constantly maligned, you know, from uh, sustainability uh, activists and those sorts of things, turned over their chemical facilities to produce the chemicals that go into the products such as PPE and those kinds of things. So, and automotive with Ford GM and ventilators, all those things. I mean, those guys have been phenomenally responsible. So I believe that, you know, that kind of behavior, when you get into a crisis, big companies are stepping up. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's no business case to justify some of these things in this environment, which we all do understand. But fundamentally, they're doing the responsible thing. You even see some creative things in small companies. Uh, there's a small little company in Connecticut, New York. It's actually created the platform and technology that allows people to get back to work faster. I mean, I won't go take you through all the details, but basically it certifies your test results in your health. And whether you're working in the work or you're going into a restaurant, for that matter, or you and I in the studio again, it'll say, hey, Sam's technically healthy. He's passed all these tests, and it's on his phone, and you let him in, and he goes on. And we can do this again like we used to do it live in your studio. Sam, you've had a lot of experience with supply chains and a lot of experience with China. Do you anticipate that one of the consequences of this pandemic, when we come out of it, which we will at some point, will be some permanent changes in our relations, our business relations with China, and for that matter, in extended supply chains around the world? Supply chains should have been designed for resiliency. By that, I mean you have multiple alternatives. So you, weren't, you, weren't, you didn't have a major component in one geography, wherever it happened to be, so you could rebalance if a crisis occurred. That could have been a tsunami. It could be weather. It could be lots of things. It could have been a military action. I mean, we all designed our supply chain, so if those events occurred on a global basis, you could readjust. If you look at the companies that have not been as impacted as dramatically by this, they're the ones that had a, I'll call it a resilient, balanced supply chain. Uh, what's, good, what's driving the changes to the supply chain, quite honestly, David, is the fact that technology more so than low cost. Uh, so therefore, which drove it up until, I'd say, maybe 
10 years ago was cost. Where do you locate for cost? And you see that all over the world. Yes, a lot went to China. China became the manufacturing hub of the world. There's no doubt about it. However, that was more of a cost-driven scenario. It started with the trade negotiations, but fundamentally, people were looking at this thing and saying, look, I need to have flexibility in my supply chain. I also want to be close to the market so I can respond quickly. That was Wall Street Week contributor Sam Palmisano. Coming up on Wall Street Week, China is two months ahead of the United States in dealing with the coronavirus, and Starbucks is seeing both sides. We talk with CEO Kevin Johnson about what their experience in China taught them about getting back to business in the United States. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Businesses in the United States have been closed for about seven weeks now. But in China, it's been closer to 15 weeks. And China is well on its way back in many of its businesses. Starbucks has seen it in both places. And we talked with Starbucks CEO and President Kevin Johnson about what they learned in China that might help us get back to business here in the United States. We started uh, working on the COVID-19 response in China in mid-January. And so uh, we're now in week 15 in China. And we've learned some very important things from that experience. You know, the first is that there are phases that everyone, every market around the world goes through. And, and the first phase, you know, we, we really refer to that as sort of the mitigate and contain phase. And that's, uh, that period lasted for three weeks in China where uh, people were asked to shelter at home, businesses were shut down, social distancing, all with the focus on how to flatten the curve and slow the spread of the virus. Uh, coming out of the mitigate and contain phase in China, we then transition into a phase that we call monitor and adapt. And monitor and adapt basically means we begin to reopen stores, but we reopen them with different store protocols, you know, amplifying safety. Uh, oftentimes it's for mobile order for pickup only. Uh, and, and we did that in China while at the same time we monitor the number of COVID cases that, uh, that, that might pop up in certain in cities around China. And uh, in the U.S. here, we are now just coming out of the mitigate and contain phase. We've been in that for six weeks now in the U.S. And as we transition into this monitor and adapt phase, you know, we plan to open, uh, reopen uh, over 90 percent of our Starbucks stores uh, by early June. In fact, next week, the majority of those stores in the United States will reopen. And we will reopen using safety protocols that we developed in China and have adapted for the U.S., will reopen in a way that provides our customers a safe, familiar, and convenient experience. And so we're excited uh, for next week. Many of our Starbucks partners are referring to it as homecoming week because they too, like all of us, <laughs> have been sheltering at home and we're ready to, to, to get out and do something, but do something that's safe and responsible. And that's the balance that we work to strike in this monitor and adapt phase. As you say, Kevin, as you came back online and you have the vast majority of your stores now in China back up and running, as I understand, you have modified your hours, modified how many people can be there. I see that the same store sales, even though you have almost all the stores open, are down somewhat. Can you tell how much of that is just reluctance on the part of consumers to come back out and buy things as opposed to just having fewer people in the stores and shorter hours? Yeah, it's a combination of, of all of those things, David. And, and I, can't, I can't necessarily attribute it to anyone, although I do know that you know, in our store protocols, for example, uh, in China, you know, most stores are not open for seating. They're open for customers to come in for takeaway in China. And uh, some stores have limited seating uh, so that we can enforce social distancing. Uh, and one of the differences between China and the U.S., in the U.S., pre-COVID, 
over 80% of our customer occasions in the U.S. were for takeaway or to go. And so uh, the U.S. consumer was much more sort of on the go. And so we think opening in the U.S., we're going to get a very significant uh, result. But uh, the positive news is every week we see continuous improvement in China as we monitor and adapt. We turn the dial up slowly and start to open limited seating, open other services. And now as we begin that path in the U.S., we're very optimistic that, uh, that you know, by the end of, end of uh, May, early June, you know, we're going to have a much better perspective on, on how quickly this is going to recover. Kevin, do you have any projections on how the overall state of the economy and the employment situation might affect uh, consumers coming back to Starbucks stores but right here in the United States? We now know officially we are in a recession. It's going to get worse. Is this something that really could put pressure, downward pressure on your volume? Well, you know, certainly Starbucks, we've, we've gone through recessions in the past. And if the past is an indicator of, of, of how customers behave, uh, you know, we think we're going to be in a very, very strong position. We work to have a premium experience. Uh, and build long-term loyal customers. And you know what we offer is an affordable luxury. And even in times uh, you know of a recession, uh, you know customers are looking for something to uplift the everyday. And and if it's if it's their daily Starbucks or or maybe they 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 cut back a little bit, but there's an affinity that customers have for Starbucks. And we work hard to earn that loyalty and that trust. And and that's what has carried us through recessions in the past. Uh, but I think competitively, we, we understand that we differentiate by, by the work that we do to create a great customer experience in our stores, through the beverage innovation, and through those digital customer relationships. And that model was working pre-COVID. In fact, in the first part of this, uh, this quarter in the United States, we were posting an eight comp with 4% growth in transaction. And so going through COVID, being responsible, thoughtful, focusing on that safe, familiar, convenient experience, we think that's going to become the on-ramp. And then as we go forward, we're going to continue to, to do everything we can to provide that great experience to customers. And in the past, that has gotten us through recessions. And I think that's going to, uh, that's going to play out uh, through this one as well. Kevin, do you have any sense at this point of what, what might be permanent or long-term changes in Starbucks business? For example, percentage of digital orders, percentage of takeout. As you said, it was already high in the United States. But are we facing a world where maybe we won't have any sit-down in Starbucks stores? Well, I don't think it's going to be that extreme, but certainly right now, what, what customers are going to look for is safe, familiar, and convenient. And, you know, we've all been sheltering in our homes for six weeks. We've got a little stir crazy. People want to get out and do something, but they want to be responsible. They don't want to, uh, you know, create an unsafe situation or do things that create sort of uh, reignite the spread of the virus. And so that's what we've tuned these initial experiences for. But longer term, you know, you think about, you know, once we get a vaccine and treatments for this, then I think consumer behavior can start to adapt even more. And it'll take time. You know, the, the effect in this experience of COVID-19 will affect all of us for the rest of our lifetimes. But the, the fact is that, that as human beings, we have this natural gravitational pull to interact with other humans. And so the need state of community and feeling a part of the community really is what the third place is about. It's a mindset. And, uh, and, and people, people have that inherent in them as just part of humanity. And so as we focus on being safe and familiar and convenient coming out of this, we're going to slowly open up stores and uh, provide the opportunity for customers to connect with one another in a, in a safe and social distance way. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, I think long term, uh, the, the, the Starbucks third place is going to be as relevant as ever. It's just going to take time. 
So as a last question, Kevin, talk about the long term, about growth for Starbucks in this new world. Uh, where do you see growth? And let me be very specific. You and I have talked in the past about how many stores you're opening in China. Is it going to be fewer stores you're opening in China? I saw Luckin is really having some trouble. Can you take market share there? Well, you know, I think we've been taking market share, you know, throughout this entire period. And, and uh, but what, what's important is we've been in China for, for over 20 years now, David. And throughout that 20 year period, we have worked to establish an admired and trusted brand uh, in a way that resonates with our with our Chinese customers. And, and that's by showing respect to the, the Chinese culture. It's 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 designing stores that are that are that are appropriate that, that, that have, uh, you know, artwork and built by local craftsmen. And our, our partners in China are fantastic. They create that magical Starbucks experience. That was Starbucks President and CEO Kevin Johnson. Coming up, we talked with our Wall Street Week contributor and senior executive editor for economics at Bloomberg, Stephanie Flanders, about just how bad those European numbers are. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The economic numbers kept coming in worse this week, and the central bankers, well, they were listening. We talked with our Wall Street Week contributor and senior executive editor for economics at Bloomberg, Stephanie Flanders, about just how bad those European numbers are. I'm a little bit reassured in a funny kind of way by these numbers, which obviously relate to the first quarter, so not even before we had some of the biggest lockdown measures in some of the economies um, because it suggests that we have a handle on how this is affecting the economy. It's not much of a silver lining, but actually uh, our economists at Bloomberg Economics, we have been looking at more high-frequency data and looking at some data that the French should pull together on the impact of lockdowns. And our numbers were a bit bigger than the consensus, and they've been kind of borne out by this. So not to, not to gloat, but at least it suggests that we have a handle on what the second quarter is going to look like, what the impact of these broader lockdowns is going to be. And we might also start to take some heart from the high-frequency numbers we're looking, for example, at Germany, where electricity usage is starting to pick back up. You know, we are still starting to see some benefits from that slow move away from total lockdown. But, of course, the big picture is still a historic decline. Uh, Stephanie, you have a handle perhaps on the numbers and how bad they're likely to get. 
Do we have a handle on what needs to be done about it? We had the ECB come out and make some changes today to try to help things. At the same time, Madame Lagarde said we really need a coordinated fiscal stimulus. I think it's fair to say that both the United States and over in Europe, the first response is we have to supply, have to really protect the supply side. But how do we get the demand going again with all the consumers having sat home for so long and, frankly, being concerned about their health? Yeah, and we've seen that, as you know, in Wuhan, some of the places that have had, you know, a removal of the supply side shock, if you like. You know, people are going to work, they're in the factories, but the demand's not coming back. People are not going back to restaurants, they're not going out to spend. So, of course, that is a worry. Um, I think the fiscal programs so far, the national policies, have been all about keeping the economy in suspended animation, keeping jobs in place. And they've been quite successful at that. I think probably more successful than the states. But where they may be missing and where certainly Lagarde, the European Central Bank, will be looking for more from governments and from the European Commission is that piece you're talking about, the stimulus. Once we start to see economies slowly moving out of lockdown, as we now are, what's going to be there to actually stimulate economies as opposed to just keeping them in keeping them on hold, which is effectively what they've been doing for this period of lockdown. But so many and so much uncertainty about the path of that lockdown uh, from here because we know Germany, for example, is starting to see a push back up in infection. So other countries are looking and saying, hmm, maybe we can't follow in Germany's footsteps. So, Stephanie, to bring it back to the United States for a moment and to compare and contrast, we heard from the Fed and the Fed chair, Jay Powell, yesterday. And one of the things he said was over the medium term, not just the short term, the medium term, we really have challenges. And he suggested even there might be longer term damage. We have had the fiscal stimulus, at least a lot of it here in the United States. How can we learn from the U.S. experience as it applies to Europe? You know, I think it's tricky. I mean, I think we have seen uh, a willingness, if you like, to have more people join the unemployment polls and then increase that support for people who are unemployed. So we had more jobless claim numbers today from the U.S. You know, that's been, if you like, the U.S. way, that they've been less protective of employment, but pushing a lot more money into the economy and perhaps getting it to businesses as well, though we know not some states more than others. So I guess there is a lesson there, but the worry the Fed is stating is, pushing all these people out of work. You know, it would be nice to think that a lot of this work will immediately spring back, you know, gig workers, younger workers may be able to be flexible. But we know historically, once you lose your job, even especially if perhaps if you're at the beginning of your career, you can have a permanent hit in terms of wages and you can find it permanently harder to get jobs. So that's the kind of longer-term hit that the Fed is talking about and, frankly, why they're seeing maybe unemployment not getting back in the 4 or 5% range for several years. And it's a hit that is not necessarily evenly distributed. We're seeing dispersion. I mean, for example, let's just take big tech in the United States. It's doing really, really well. We've had earnings out this week that are very, very good. Are you seeing that in Europe as well as the United States? In effect, you're seeing some parts of the economy that are likely to come back faster and better. Others are really much more challenged. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, and of course, we've also had that of a story of the sort of market performance of the last few years, right? One of the reasons why Europe has consistently lagged is because it was the tech sector that was doing so well, and Europe just had a smaller tech sector. So that's definitely a concern if you think that that, one, that sector is the one that's also coming out of the strongest. I think in Europe's favor was the point I made earlier, that you are they have perhaps done a better job of preserving work in places like Germany and France, so if you can get the demand back you possibly don't have quite such a hill to climb in terms of getting people back into work. But I think that sexual breakdown is going to be a concern in the U.S. as well, because we know that 
for example, you know, women and lower paid workers right. who had actually been doing a bit better the last four or five years in the U.S. after a long time of, of problems, right. but certainly for the low wage sector. You know, it's that right. bit of the labor market that has now been right. really hit. And of course, you have to worry right. about that on both sides of the right. Atlantic. That was Bloomberg's Stephanie Flanders. Coming up, the central banks got to work this week. We talked with former Fed chairman Alan Greenspan about how different it is this time. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. One thing that the Fed confirmed for us this week is that the old rules, well, they've sort of gone away, at least for the time being, including things like concern over fiscal discipline. We talked with former Fed chairman Alan Greenspan about whether this pandemic crisis may be fundamentally altering the way the government regulates the economy. Well, I think it's going to be longer than we suspect, largely because the defining characteristic of the next century will be an inexorable aging of the population. More than 18% of the population of the industrialized countries of the world are age 65 and older. And until the last century, the vast proportion of the population worked until they died. Retirement was a rare outcome. Uh, As a consequence of this, U.S. retirement benefits, especially Social Security and health care, have escalated significantly and are projected to expand materially further in the decades ahead. And that uh, is an issue which I can explain in some considerable detail for you as to what I think is going to happen. But I think it's going to be a dominant force in slowing down the rate of growth. And uh, it's unclear at this stage whether we are going to be looking at the type of pattern that Sweden looked at for a number of years and cured, or we're going to be in trouble. But, 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 Mr. Chairman, what is the, the solution to that or the answer to that? Because if anything, this pandemic, I think, will push countries, the United States and other countries, perhaps in the direction of greater social support, of greater social benefit programs, because so many people are being hurt so badly. I absolutely agree with that. I think that uh, um, the, the bottom line is that retirement benefits and essentially Social Security, Medicare, and the like are going to be major forces in the years ahead and in government programs. Uh, at, at the same time, as the Federal Reserve meets today, uh, should they be more concerned about deflation at this point than inflation? We've had, as you know, oil futures contracts actually trade well into the negative numbers. Commodities are weak around the world, and the, the go-forward f- inflation numbers are quite disturbing. Is there a real risk of deflation right now in the United States well, and globally? Yeah. Let me just say, I'll answer it generically, but... Uh, Since I've left office, I've been very scrupulous in not commenting specifically on what uh, my successors were doing. But uh, as a general question, there's no doubt uh, that uh, the problems involved uh, with the 
difficulties of recent weeks uh, are having a profound effect, and uh, you can judge them as well as anybody. Uh, Glenn Hubbard, whom you know, the economist now at, at Columbia, has war- warned about demand destruction uh, and the possibility of what he calls a doom loop. Do we face even the prospect of a possible depression, not just recession? Uh, no, that, that's a little bit... That presumes that we don't do take the type of actions that Sweden did and resolve the problems which are very similar to those in which we have been confronted with. And uh, what that would fundamentally entail is uh, solving uh, the whole question of how you go from a, a socialist society, which Sweden was, and it finally came, collapsed in the late 1990s, uh, and made major revisions of the type that were we to make would make our Social Security, Medicare, and other problems uh, get resolved. But we are nowhere near that as yet. And it gets to a, a lot of issues which uh, uh, I'm not sure we want to get into. But uh, you know, it, the problems are out there. And... Uh, I hope we come to grips with them sooner rather than later. But I wonder, Dr. Greenspan, whether we haven't taken a step, and maybe it was the right step, but a step in the direction of what you call socialized uh, uh, economy, uh, starting with the 2008-2009, but certainly now, with the extent to which the federal government, through fiscal means, is really intervening into the economy very regularly, and for that matter, the central banks, not just the Federal Reserve, but others, have grown their balance sheet to an increasing degree. Uh, investment decisions even depend as much on what we think the government's going to do as on what we think the economy is doing or the consumer. Well, we've been, I would say, the investment process of, of all of the companies with whom I dealt could not get around the fact that what the government is doing is having a very significant impact on financial world. And the financial world is where the bottom line is profits and what you're working at. So uh, I fully concur with what you're saying. And uh, uh, we, we are moving in directions uh, which are quite surprising, and obviously the, the virus issue coming up has made us a very much more difficult problem to deal with. But uh, how we come out of this thing is going to depend very much on fundamental issues with respect to government. And uh, it seems ironic that I'm saying we ought to be looking at Sweden, which used to be the quintessential socialist society as the measure uh, which we ought to direct ourselves uh, to get our system in more balance. And uh, I, I speak to a lot of people, very few people listen. Well, so we're listening, and we want to hear what you have to suggest, because any crisis, uh, from from what I've read in history, uh, can give opportunities as well as real perils. 
Uh, if we were to forgive the expression, use this crisis to move the economy, move the government in the direction you think would be more constructive, how would we do that? Well, I think the first thing is to recognize that uh, what the data remarkably show is that for the last 50 years, uh, social benefits have been crowding out gross domestic savings in the United States uh, dollar for dollar. And that has meant effectively that if gross domestic savings is being reduced, that's being the major source of gross domestic investment, then we are dealing with a situation where productivity growth slows down, which is precisely what has been happening. And if what we need to do, we're, we're now at a 1% annual rate of productivity growth. That's intolerably low. And unless and until we can turn it up, and the only way we can do that is by structuring uh, our investment towards capital goods, and we're not doing that in an effective manner at the moment. There are some who are very concerned about what's going on in the government right now because of what is called moral hazard, that in the effort to bail out companies, uh, that we are bailing out some who have been profligate, not just those who have been prudent, uh, including investing in things like high-yield bonds and things like that. Is this a time to be concerned about moral hazard, or should we put that to one side and deal with the much bigger hazard of the coronavirus? Uh, I think it's, uh, put it aside, it's not a... I mean, uh, I agree it is an issue, but there are lots of issues which we can deal with without really being concerned about them. And Dr. Greenspan, how do you assess the situation with unemployment? Obviously, we've lost 26 million jobs or so in five weeks. There are projections it will get worse. Some people say it may even get to an unemployment level that beats what was going on during the Great Depression. What do you project in terms of unemployment through the rest of the year? Well, the problem basically is uh, we actually are looking at uh, a terrible first quarter, obviously, second quarter is pretty awful. But uh, if the issue of the virus works its way we, the way we expect, we probably have a very strong third quarter. But my concern is going is the fourth quarter and beyond. Uh, it's, it's the years ahead where the changes have got to be made. Uh, and uh, I would be less concerned about many of the issues which confront us today, although I do say, importantly, uh, the virus issue has got to be resolved in a rational and sensible manner and change, for example, with, uh, Social Security benefits and the way they are paid uh, so that we don't run in to the crisis that Sweden ran into as a consequence. That was former Fed Chair Alan Greenspan. This has been another edition of Wall Street Week. See you next week. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. 
Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.